Okay, Luke chapter 2, today our concentration will be verses 1 to 7. Let's read this passage. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. My Father, I pray that every heart would have the posture of seeking after you. You have said, Seek my face. I pray that my heart and every heart that is in this room would have the earnest reply, Your face, Lord, do I seek. I pray, Father, that you would pour out your good on my church family today. You know, Father, how weak and fragile I am. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I can't give your people your good. I pray, Father, that you would pour it out on them. I pray that I would be a channel filled with your Holy Spirit and that my aim would be your glory and their good. And I pray that the preaching of your word and the receiving of your word would bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name and for his sake, I pray. Amen. Let's uh, go back to verses 1 and 2 for a moment. My, My responsibility is to open up the word of God to you. And that's all of the word of God to you. Including these parts which we might be quick to pass by and skim over because they don't mean as much to us as they would naturally to Theophilus. Theophilus, to whom Luke was writing this gospel, was there. He knew this history. These historical markers that Luke lays down would be very familiar to him. We don't know these things as well, but my responsibility is to open, to exposit the word. So I need to open even these things to you. Let's read these two verses again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. The question that I want to be uh, pushing upon you today, pressing upon you, is this. What room do you have for the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you opened yourself up to Christ the Lord and said, have me and have all of me. He is the Lord of all. He is not as we like to portray him, especially come Christmas time, as 
the precious sweet little baby in the manger. He is exalted Lord of all. He is not so small that he would settle for a little of your life. He would have all of you. Have you opened up your life to him and said, have me, have all of me for yourself? I'll tell you at this beginning part, who has no room for Christ? Secular historians have no room for the Jesus of the Gospels in their understanding of history. And Luke 2 verse 2 is in their crosshairs. I don't know if you are aware of that or not, but if you uh, watch much TV and if you, let's say that you watch um, Discovery, their History Channel, National Geographic, those kinds of programs, uh, those kinds of networks, come Christmas time and Easter as well, you're going to see programming that fits the season, that fits the celebrations of the church and retells the stories and gets into, digs into the, the, the history that is underneath these things. And so, come every Christmas, secular historians are all over Luke chapter 2, verse 2. Every Christmas, the media is licking its chops and pounces on this verse, attacking the historicity of Luke's Christmas narrative. And in doing so, they're casting doubts in a lot of vulnerable minds about the truth of Jesus. Now, remember something really important. Because I I think that as we go over this at the beginning, it's not exactly inspiring stuff. And it's not going to have a, a wide application to your life, and particularly your spiritual life and your heart before the Lord. But remember why Luke is writing. This comes from chapter 1, verse 4. He's writing to Theophilus and to all his readers that we would be certain of the truth. And as a first-rate and careful historian led by the Holy Spirit of God, Luke lays down at the beginning of chapter 1, and that's in verse 5, the beginning of chapter 2, which we just read in these two verses, And also the beginning of chapter 3, he lays down these historical markers to help his readers be certain of the truth of Jesus. Now, people who are watching these these networks, these programs come Christmas time, who are vulnerable and not established in the word, hearing the skepticism of historians who just attack Luke's version of events, this becomes a stumbling block, block to them. Now, I'm not saying if we correct this in their thinking that they are suddenly certain of the worth of Jesus. No one is certain of Jesus' worth apart from the Holy Spirit's work to draw them to God. Apart from the conviction of the work of the Spirit. Uh, Apart from that eye-opening, ear-opening, heart-opening, supernatural work of God. But... They need to be, if they're going to get to the place where they will be certain of the worth of Christ, they need help to be certain of the truth. And this is where the world likes to attack. So as, as my responsibility is to open all the word of God to you, I want to give you some answers to equip you. Because you have family members that watch this kind of stuff. You may watch this kind of stuff and, and have questions but not know 
where to go necessarily for answers, or you might just say, I don't believe that, they're wrong, I don't know why, but I know they're wrong. I believe the Bible, I believe the Bible is given by the Spirit of God, so there's one reason, but I want to give you some other helps to equip you yourself and to equip you to help other people. Okay, so why the skepticism on Luke 2 verse 2? Because for one thing, Luke has already said in chapter 1 that these events happened during the reign of Herod the Great. Now in chapter 2 verse 2, he locates when this specific registration for tax purposes happens. He says it's the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. But here's the thing. Quirinius, governor of Syria, administered an infamous census in Judea a decade after Herod had died. So you put those two things together, this happens during Herod's reign, and second, there was the census a decade later, which this is not a whole lot of question about that, we have a potential problem. Now, why does history remember that specific census? Because it led to a revolt in Judea against the Romans. So the secular historians are not wrong about that fact. One thing that they overlook, however, is that Luke remembers that particular census very well himself. He actually references that census that led to this revolt against the Romans in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. We don't have time to go there or to read it. If you're taking any kind of notes to help you through this, to help you process it, you might want to write down that reference. Now, let me give you three possible answers to this, the criticism of the historians. The secular historians might be downright wrong. And it's possible that Quirinius served two terms and administered two different censuses, one during Herod's reign and another ten years after his death. That's a possibility. Now, this period of history is pretty well chronicled for us, and there's no evidence of that. Luke uh, doesn't necessarily say that. Josephus, who's chronicling very carefully himself, he doesn't say that. We don't have evidence of that, so it's a possibility but I think it's kind of a small one, personally. Here's a a second possibility. They may be partially right. And it could be the case that what Luke means is that this particular registration that compels Joseph and Mary down south from Nazareth is the first phase of a census that isn't wrapped up until 10 years after Herod has died. And that's a very real possibility because this is about 6 or 5 B.C. Herod dies in 4 B.C. This is, this is common knowledge in history. So Herod dies shortly after this census. Well, what happened is, you know, Herod the Great reigned over all of Palestine. And after he died, there was no other Herod to take over the whole thing. Instead, the, the, the kingdom was parceled out to his three sons, Archelaus in Judea, Herod Antipas in the north, Galilee, and there was another part for Herod Philip II. Well, Archelaus was um, a very powerful and very cruel ruler. He had all the cruelty of his father. 
without any of the political diplomacy or genius. He really was, he, he, he really was fumbling the whole thing. So after Herod dies, Judea is a politically volatile, unstable place. And actually, the other two brothers, the other two Herods, try to get um, Archelaus out. They, they want him banished. They go to Caesar Augustus himself and try to get him out. At first, Caesar lets him stay. But in 86, Caesar Augustus has had enough, and he banishes Archelaus to Gaul. Then, Caesar Augustus doesn't put any Herod over that district. There's two other Herods, Herod uh, Antipas and Philip II to the north, but no Herod over Judea. So in AD 6, after Archelaus is out, it's time for a census, and who would govern that? It has to be an outsider. And so Caesar Augustus delegates it to Quirinius, governor of Syria. This is a huge issue for the Jews. They are already on edge. They do not like Roman rule, and now the, the Romans are ruling directly in Judea for the first time. Before, they were ruling through the Hasmonean dynasty. You remember the Maccabees and all of them. And then they were ruling through the Herodian dynasty. Now, there's no Hasmonean or Herodian dynasty in the way. This is direct Roman rule. And so the Jews revolt. This happens in 86. That's actually uh, when the Zealots rise. You remember Simon the Zealot, one of the 12 disciples? Uh, so this... This revolt gave birth to, to that particular uh, party, that group of people. So here's a third possibility, okay? I mentioned two. Quirinius could have had two terms. Or this may have been, uh, after all of the instability, perhaps Quirinius wrapped up that census and Joseph and Mary participated in the first phase of it. Here's another possibility. I want you to look down at verse 2. Okay, so we have the translation this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. The original language of this, of course, is Greek. It could also yield this translation. That wording, in verse 2, could yield these words. Would you look down at verse 2 so you can see the difference? It could be, this was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And that's reflected in the ESV footnote, if you're using that particular version to follow along. First of all, you may have noticed that that new translation doesn't have the word when. When isn't in the original language. We supply it in our translation to make sense of it in English. But secondly, and more important, the word that is translated first in our Bibles is protos. And it can also mean before. And sometimes it's, it's a less, it's used less that way, but it is several times in the New Testament. Uh, the book of John yields a couple of examples. So it could be translated before, which when you drop the when and have before, it would yield this was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. And let, let me just fill you in on a, another detail real quick. You, you remember after Herod the Great dies? Well, Let's, let's even back it up further. After Jesus is born and the wise men come from the east and they're looking for this one who has been born king of the Jews, Herod the Great, who is extremely paranoid and, and, and devilish in his cunning and his cruelty, he wants this baby boy dead. 
And so he orders all of the baby boys, two years of age and younger, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area to be killed. This causes Joseph and Mary to flee with Jesus down to Egypt. In Egypt, once Joseph gets word that Herod the Great has died, which doesn't take very long, he starts back. This is in Matthew 2.22. But he learns that Archelaus is in control of Judea now. And he's afraid to return because, again, Archelaus has all the cruelty of his father, but none of the diplomatic skills. And so being warned in a dream, Joseph and Mary go back into Galilee where they raise Jesus up in, in Nazareth. Anyway, just to fill in a little bit more of the blanks. So in AD 6, after Archelaus is banished, Quirinus administers the census. Whether it's the end of a a census 10 years or 12 years in the making, or it's a new census, we don't know. The point is, here's my point, the historians completely disregard that Luke knows about this census of AD 6, mentions it clearly in Acts 5.37. And the reason that he uses this word protos, whether it means first or before, is to distinguish it from the census that everybody remembered very well, as infamous as that census was. So there are arguments. If you tune in at Christmas time, you'll hear this. Hold no weight. They have no weight whatsoever. I have some more history for you. You say, more? I've got some more. Remember, Theophilus knows the backstory to these things. So, and we don't. So we need to fill it in. Let's back up 500 years before the coming of Christ. More than 500 years before Jesus came, God broke the pride of one of the world's greatest kings. His name was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And God told him that he would humble him until Nebuchadnezzar came to the realization that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Daniel chapter 4, verse 32. So by the time we get to the first century, the power of the Middle East has dramatically shifted. It has changed hands a number of times. After Babylonian hands were on the Middle East, it went to the Medo-Persians. From the Medo-Persians to the Greeks, Alexander the Great, you remember him, and then to the Romans. The head of the Roman Republic in the 40s BC was Julius Caesar. Very skilled, master politician, a lot of charisma. He was the head of the Roman Republic, but there was conspiracy, great conspiracy against him, and he was assassinated in the Roman Senate in 44 BC. In case you're wondering, he was stabbed 23 times. Probably you weren't wondering, but I just thought I'd let you know. His grandnephew Octavius at the time is in his early 20s studying outside the country when he learns about Julius Caesar's death. So he heads back to Rome. On his way back, he finds out that Julius Caesar, just before he died, actually adopted his great-nephew Octavius as his heir. Sweet! Um, well, unless you didn't want to get involved in all of that and you know, think that the assassins will now turn on you. It wouldn't be so sweet. But to Octavius, it was pretty sweet. So he changes his name to Caesar Octavian. And early on, he begins to share a, a rule with Antony and some other guy who's pretty 
forgettable, but they form this triumvirate, and together they wage war against the coalition of Caesar's assassins and destroy them. Problem is, this triumvirate is a rather rocky relationship, and within a decade, it devolves into war. So Caesar Octavian is against Antony, and in 31 BC, Caesar Octavian's armies defeat Antony's, who, along with his wife Cleopatra, after that great battle, in which his army is wiped out, they both commit suicide. Four years later, in 27 BC, we have the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire, with Caesar Octavian acting as the first emperor in the history of this empire. The Senate gives to him the name Augustus, meaning majestic. And in time, he's going to add the full name, Imperator or Emperor Caesar Divi Filius Augustus. And this is the translation from the Latin. Victorious commander or emperor, victorious commander Caesar, son of God, the majestic. It's by his decree that all of his domains are being registered for the purposes of a census to get tax money. Caesar presides over his empire full of pride. He is hailed by all of the the Roman Empire as the Lord and the Savior of the earth. He has introduced this Pax Romana, the Roman peace. So he is the the founder, and he is the guard of world peace in the minds of the people. Now, the empire has great ambition. The first emperor has great ambition. They are constantly expanding the borders of their territory. Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for the defense? Who's going to pay to keep the peace? Who is going to pay for the vast network of roads that they are building? And so Caesar frequently orders these censuses to be done of all his people. And so now we home in on Palestine. Herod the Great is glad to comply with the latest census. And this young betrothed couple in the north of Palestine, in the region of Galilee, preparing as they are for marriage, are suddenly caught up in the tide of Caesar's mandate, and they're compelled to leave their hometown of Nazareth and travel south. They go up into the hill country of Judea to Bethlehem, to David's hometown, because Joseph is of the house and lineage of David the king. It says in verses 3 to 5, And all went to be registered, each to his own town, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. That's verses 1 to 5. What is the point of Luke's historical note? People have been saying for centuries, all roads lead Where? All roads lead to Rome. But all the roads of history, 
every turn in the course of events, is God paving the way for his son, paving the way to his son. God rules in the kingdom of men, and he rules in all the affairs of men. Caesar would have his his way in the earth, but this so-called majestic one is actually the unwitting slave to the Most High God. Caesar's decree and his every decree bows to the decree of the one true God. 600 years before the birth of Christ, God had declared, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be counted among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And that's why this young couple travels the 80 miles south to Bethlehem so that there Mary will give birth to the promised true Prince of Peace and the true Son of God. Verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Those two verses are pretty plain, just considering them on their own, aren't they? You have a plain, simple statement there. Mary gives birth to her firstborn son. It's really quite a natural thing. The only thing that's unusual about Verses 6 and 7 on the surface is this mention of a manger, that he gets laid in a feed trough. That's pretty odd. That's unusual. But aside from that, this is a very plain and simple statement. So just think about that for a moment. Has there ever been such a plain statement that held such wonders? Because Herein lies the revelation of the miracle of miracles and the wonder of wonders. This little one born to Mary is truly God. He is truly God in the flesh. He's truly God and he is also truly human, which means that when he is born, Truly, he's not pretending. Truly, he feels this sense of insecurity, as all babies who can't hold their heads up do. You know what a a baby is like when they can't hold their head up and they feel the least bit insecure as you, you have them, that their arms flail out. He truly feels insecure, truly startled. He shivers for the first feel of that cold on his wet baby skin. He's quickly wiped clean. He gets his first breath and he cries. He is finally nestled against his mother. He roots as babies do. He's fed. He's exhausted. And he falls asleep. He's not pretending. He is not thinking as these things go on, 
you think I'm just a little bit ba- a little bitty baby, but I'm not. He says, I know what to do. I'm just pretending. He's truly human, meaning he feels true human weakness. Think about what is going on here. The humbling of heaven to earth. The invisible, spiritual God to true human form, flesh and blood. The eternal and endless God coming into the confines of time and the confines of a manger. Confines of time and space. From heaven's throne to a feed trough from the praises of the angels to a Jewish mother's Jewish lullabies. His first struggle, humanly, is to breathe. His second struggle is to find his mother's breast. He is wrapped in swaddling cloth because truly he needs warmth. Truly he needs security. Now, I remember when Brian was born, specifically, sorry to mention your name, Brian, but I've got to tell the story on you. I've told it before. So, when Brian was born, she was born with long fingernails and unhappy. And flailing about like insecure babies do, she ended up scratching her face all up. So her first, her first baby pictures aren't really, it's just like, man, what did you do to yourself? Before we could get the mitts on, before we could wrap her up in that blanket. That's why he's wrapped up in swaddling cloth. With his flailing arms, he just might scratch his baby skin. Truly God, truly man. Kent Hughes preached, there was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenters' hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs waving helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. Plain, simple statement in verses 6 and 7. But the wonders of the revelation, the wonders of the truth here, are beyond anything mankind has ever known. Now why are they here? Think about this. It says at the end of verse 7 that she lays her baby in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. They are here because Caesar has put them out of their hometown of Nazareth. That's one reason, at least that's a surface historical reason, why they're in Nazareth, or Bethlehem rather. And they're also here in this position because a homeowner, possibly related to Joseph, has refused them room. I say that because this is Joseph's ancestral home. This is where his family line is from. So it's possibly family. Now, what do we think of when we think, okay, there's no place for them in the inn? Don't think days in. You know, don't think of complimentary hot breakfasts and free Wi-Fi and all of that kind of stuff. Don't think that. Um, 
This word in is the same word that Luke will use near the end of his book for guest room. Jesus tells his disciples, Peter and John, to go to a certain house and ask for use of the guest room, which is the upper room in the house. It's the same word that's used here. Back in that day in the Middle East, first century, a lot of people had two-room houses. The, the main living area was the lower level, and the upper area was exclusively for the use of guests. And it was just plain expectation that Jews in the first century would exercise hospitality to family or to strangers or to whomever. Hospitality was the, the order of the day. So now a, a lot of commentators actually will say at this point that there was nothing hostile whatsoever in Mary and Joseph being put into the stable. There is the main living area, and then you have the upper guest room, and it's full, so it's possible that the stable was actually in the house. Off of the main living area, there was a lower level, a step down, that could be served double duty as a stable for when it was cold, that the, the smaller, more vulnerable animals would be brought inside, and that, that functioned as the stable. And so they say, there's nothing hostile in this. And so they're, you know, our traditional understanding has been hostility. But think about this. Who doesn't have room for the newborn? Who doesn't make room? Who doesn't give space to this young girl who is frightened and about to give birth to her first baby? So it says there was no room for, the, for them. The homeowner isn't saying, I really don't want this mess on my floors. This isn't very sanitary. So what we could do for you, though, is we could just put you in the stable and, you know, that would be better. He's not deciding that he doesn't want blood on his floor. He's deciding he doesn't want Mary on his floor. That's what it means when he says there's no room. In the age, in the time and place where hospitality is the order of the day, who doesn't give up room for them? So why? Why would they not have room for them? We don't exactly know. It could have been just plain cruelty. It also could have been a show of righteousness, self-righteousness. And that, I'm just, this is speculation, but it's possible that, again, this is Joseph's relations who may know that Joseph and Mary are in their betrothal period. They're not properly married. And yet, scandally speaking, Mary is already pregnant. So we don't have room for you. So whether cruelty or just plain supposed self-righteousness, either way, Joseph and Mary are relegated to the lowest place. And it's not necessarily inside either. That's also speculation on the part of commentators. It could be that they were put into a cave that served as a stable outdoors. Now, what's the point of this? How do you respond to Christ? The point of this is not for Luke to get us to think and say, how precious, how cute. That's not the point. Humility and weakness is the point. 
We like to make the whole Christmas scene about something that's very adorable. And everybody's going to latch on to that Jesus. Christmas time Jesus, little baby Jesus. There is no one who takes offense at that particular version of Jesus. Nobody. But that's not the point. The point is not how precious. The point is the humility and the weakness. For as He comes, so He will go. As He has come suffering, lowly, dismissed by the unbelieving and by the self-righteous, so He will go. Just as He has been put out of the home in Bethlehem, so He will be put outside the gates in Jerusalem. How precious is not the point. This little one has come to grow into a body that will be ravaged by Roman soldiers, mutilated by the scourge. These little hands will grow to be impaled upon that crossbeam of execution. And there he will become a curse and bear the wrath of God for the sin of mankind. Preciousness is not the point. Humility and weakness is the point. Do you have room for him? Not only the inoffensive baby, but for the one who is the true son of God, the true prince of peace, the true savior of the world, Christ the Lord. What room do you have for Christ? What room for the one who loves the outcast and the sinner and who calls everyone alike, the high and the low, the rich and the poor, to repentance to believe on Him and to follow through death to life. What room do you have for Christ? What room do you have for the one who bears the cross and calls all people to bear their own for His name's sake? What room do you have for the one whom all the nations need and all the world presently scorns? What room do you have for the one who is set for the rise of some and the fall of others, who brings down the mighty and sends the rich away empty, who exalts the lowly and fills the hungry. What room do you have for the one who has come not to bring peace but division, a sword, he says, dividing history, dividing nations, dividing households, dividing families, dividing fathers, from their sons and mothers, from their daughters. What room do you have for Christ? And I want to ask you especially, how much room are you saying to Christ, have all of me, all that I am, all of my life is yours? Because again, I want to stir you up by way of reminder that this little one did not stay a little one. He has been exalted as Lord over all things and given the name which is above every name. And he will not settle for little. He will not settle for pieces. As Lord of all, he requires your all. He would have all of you. And so have you said to him, have all of me. Take up every space. Become every priority. Become all of my hope and all of my joy. 
You are all my righteousness and all my life. Have you said, have all of me to Christ? Give all you are over to Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, poor and outcast, but is now exalted Lord over all and is promising that he is coming again. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name that you sent your Son here. And truly, he is one of us. He was one of us, weak, suffering, lowly. He is still one of us, but now exalted, glorified, Lord Lord over all things. We are so glad he came. We so look forward to him coming again. I pray that we, all of us, will set our hopes fully on the grace that will be given to us at the revelation, the second revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare us for that day. May we as your people stay faithful until then. We pray that he would come quickly. In Jesus we pray, amen.